Hello, I'm Katie Piper, and welcome to my podcast, Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. Each episode, I'll meet an amazing person with an incredible story who faced adversity and came through the other side to inspire others. I'm joined today by Australian singer and TV presenter Shane Jenick, who you might also know as Courtney Act. He finished in the top three on RuPaul's Drag Race, and I think it's fair to say his reality TV career peaked in the UK when he won last year's Big Brother. He's an all-round superstar. Welcome to the studio, Shane. Thank you. Hello. Hello. How are you? Good. Very good. good. I'm excited to be here. Cool. Me too. I'm really excited. It's not, if not a little bit nervous to have you here, actually. Oh, stop it. <laughs> so how would you intro yourself? Um, well, people probably best know me as as Courtney Act mm-hmm. um, in the UK, uh, probably winning Celebrity Big Brother. Yes. Which was very exciting. But then, you know, RuPaul's Drag Race, I was on season six. I mean, lots of people have also seen some of the online videos that I've done. Maybe even before Big Brother, I went to a Trump rally in uh-huh. drag and interviewed people, um, not as a supporter of Trump, yeah. obviously. <laughs> um, I've done a bunch of other videos explaining gender and sexuality and all sorts of topics, circumcision. And then in I did a, a show last year for the E! Channel called The By Life, which was a dating show. Uh-huh. I've done all sorts of things. Dancing with the Stars in Australia. Yes, yeah, yeah. We, we share a, a sort of across the pond yes. kinship there. <laughs> so I'm a drag performer. I'm also, I guess, like interested in things below the surface. Are you an activist, would you say? I'd say advocate. Advocate, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like activist is, a, is a, a specific kind of person whose life is really focused on bringing about change uh-huh. for, I guess, usually a specific minority. Um, and I am definitely that, but I think my remit is a bit more broad than that. So I'd say advocate. Okay. And how do you identify personally in terms of gender? Uh, gender, I, I use the term gender fluid. Okay. Um, it's interesting because I just had a, a, a lunch with two amazing activists, Fox and Al, who are both non-binary people. Right, okay. And I was sitting there talking to them and... It's funny because all of these like nuanced labels that I know lots of people, Uh particular Piers Morgan, take (laughs) issue with, helped me come to a place where I almost feel like, I just feel like me. Uh Um, Like I, you know, I'm male. I have male genitalia and and I'm sitting here right now in inverted commas, boys clothes. (laughs) But I think for most of my teens and 20s, I kind of struggle with my own gender identity Uh because I felt... um, that I, I had this imposition to fit into like a rigid definition of masculinity growing up in Australia in the Because that's and how 90s. society made you feel. Yeah. 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 And I didn't always feel like that, you know, masculine idea fit who I was. Mm. But then also by the same token, I I didn't I didn't feel like a woman mm-hmm. necessarily, although I did drag and my style of drag is very visually feminine. How uh, old were you when you started doing drag? Uh, eighteen. Okay. Yeah, and um, and is, it was is just, that young or is that not young? Oh, I think that's really about about right. Okay. Yeah, I mean, in the UK, you know, drinking age is eighteen, uh-huh. um, and same in Australia, and that's sort of I think when you go out into the world and start uh-huh. trying on different hats or wigs. Yeah. But yeah, I started doing drag then, and it was just I was a performer growing uh-huh. up. I you know went to a theatre company after school and, you know, singing in musical theatre and that sort of stuff. And drag was actually a way where I could 
do what I loved mm-hmm. and I didn't really have to wait for anyone to say yes. Right. And okay. I think when you're in when you're in the arts, quite often you feel limited because you're like you you feel like you need someone to give you an opportunity to mm-hmm. be on stage. Mm-hmm. And drag, you can just do it. Yeah. You can just go out on a Friday night. There's lots of like, I guess, open mic-esque yeah. nights. And you just turn up and you can be really, really shit at it. <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't matter. Um, and I think that's one of the beauties of drag is that you almost, you can you can be on stage with a big audience and uh-huh. really not be good at your job at all. Well, it's quite a safety net, isn't yeah. it, in a way? Like yeah. to, to go out there and, and act confident even if you don't necessarily feel confident yet. Yeah, and there's a level of a mask there. Yeah. Um, so you're on stage with this sort of... It's not a disguise, interestingly. I think, I mean, RuPaul has said is that drag, you know, reveals... Uh, who a person is as opposed to like hides who a person is. Oh, really? Okay. Which I think is interesting because, you know, there's there's so many um, expectations placed on us and so many ways we think we should act. And Mm -hmm. so then when we put on this um, superficial layer, in some ways it allows us to be anybody. Mm -hmm. Because you can't get critiqued because it's not you. Yeah. Yeah. And... um, and interestingly, I think the the whole gender identity thing that came to a head um, in a bedroom situation, right? Where I had um, been, I mean, seeing is is probably sanitizing it too much. I'd been sleeping with a guy who identified as straight, and I was dressed as Courtney. Okay, and so every time you met him, you would go as Courtney. Yeah, which was only like. A couple of times, mm. and and for people that haven't seen Courtney, I mean you're, I mean you're you're a great you're a great looking guy. Thank you. But when you're Courtney, <laughs> like you're quite breathtaking. I sort of feel like like I am I embody weirdly. Like, I feel like I embody almost like that ultimate expression of femininity and yeah. all of the unrealistic beauty expectations that are placed on women. Yeah, well, because sometimes like someone like from my dad's generation would think of drag as like when you go on a budget holiday and it's really badly drawn in eyebrows and yeah, yeah. almost like a mockery of like an over-the-top woman, you know. Yeah. But you're you're actually stunning when, you, when you're Courtney, you know. Thank you. I think like it's funny because like originally part of my love of doing drag was subverting the extreme beauty standards. Yeah. And I think, unfortunately, because of how pop culture has gone, I sometimes almost feel like I'm reinforcing them. <laughs> well, no, I don't I don't agree. Not necessarily. Yeah. Um, I interrupted you. So you, you were sleeping okay. with this guy. Yes. You were always as Courtney. Yeah. As Courtney. And, um, and so, like, in that, I mean, I say straight identifying, obviously people listening, some people listening might go like, oh, he's obviously gay, sleeping with a bloke. Yeah. I think that it's a bit more nuanced than that, where this person identified as straight, is attracted to women, either in this instance or perhaps as a part of his sexuality, is attracted to people who visually are feminine and look like women but have penises. <laughs> um, and that's, you know, uh, a spectrum of, of sexuality that isn't common for a lot of people but is an experience for some. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I remember he was texting me, I guess you could say sexting, and he's like, what are you up to now? And I'm like, oh, I'm just at home. He's like, oh, come over. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm... Uh, you need two ooh. hours prep. Yeah, yeah, I need two hours prep for that. And he's like, "Oh, that's okay." And I was like, uh, 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 "I'm not. I'm not in drag. I'm. I'm Shane. I'm a boy. Like, let me just make this quite clear because, yeah. you know, what you might picture." And he's like, "No, no, that's fine." And I'm like, "Okay, that's confusing." Yeah, it yeah. was confusing for yeah. me because he was he was coming over, and then I remember being like, uh, uh, "What do I? How do I act?" Like, I'm not. He's he's attracted to femininity. He's used to 
being with women and used to being with me in drag. And mm. now I'm here as a boy. And I'm not, and, and I realized in that moment that I would often almost like peacock as a boy when in like gay spaces, like chatting to a gay guy. Yeah. I would, and this might sound stupid, but I would try and butch it up uh-huh. because I'd always been taught that that's what was valuable about I, But me. I don't find you camp as a guy. No, I'm not camp, yeah. but I'm also like not an alpha male. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I, I used to like, I think it's, it's interesting that you say that because I think how I'm perceived versus how I feel was what the real thing was. And so uh-huh. even though I may not be camp, in my mind, I wasn't masculine enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I'd always try and charade masculinity. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, this guy came over and I was like, I didn't know how to act. And no. he walked through the door and I was like, should I be feminine? Uh-huh. But then I'm a boy, should I be masculine? And I genuinely, like my brain hiccuped and it didn't know what to do. And so I just was me. Right. Who is you? Um, it was someone who wasn't trying to be something else, essentially. Mm. It was just being whatever was present in that moment. I wasn't trying to be more masculine. I wasn't trying to be more feminine. And I realised so much of my sexuality had been performative, mm-hmm. where I was trying to be what I thought the other person was attracted to. And so there was something so powerful about just being me and then getting positive feedback from this person who mm-hmm. was still attracted to me mm. for being me. And rather than those sexual experiences almost being a negative experience where it was reinforcing somebody's attraction to something that you are not, yeah, which I think a lot of us experience, like we're trying to be, even if it's on Instagram, you know, we're, we're popping a filter on. With edits and, yeah. And then people like that. Yeah. And then if you think about it, that reinforces something negative about you because people are liking something that you're not. Yeah. So you're getting negative validation. Well, sex or a relationship where you're constantly fulfilling that person's desire and wants is so exhausting and so crushing for your self-esteem. Yeah. And I think even on micro levels, we do that. And I think whether, like, sometimes we do that on on, in big ways. Uh You know, like, like if I was dating someone exclusively as Courtney, which isn't entirely a natural experience. And it's not possible, is it's it? It's not possible. It's too exhausting. Like. <laughs> but even just on those micro levels, I think when we try and play up, so, when, we, when we hide certain aspects of ourselves that bring us shame, then we reinforce that shame mm-hmm. and yeah, that creates a negative experience. And I think the weird part, that I, the thing that I learned from this was that ultimately... Being myself, whatever that meant, was a more healthy for me. Yes, yeah. And also more sexy for the other person, weirdly. Because you let go. Because you let go. And I think yeah. people, on a, even on a subconscious level, they sniff uh, when you're being disingenuous. Mm-hmm. And, and you're I, uptight. And yeah. It's so interesting because I went through this stage of when I first started dating after being burnt, mm-hmm. the left-hand side of my face is more burnt and I'm blind in that eye and I've lost my ear. Mm-hmm. So I used to always um, feel more self-conscious if someone sat on the left-hand side. So I would much prefer the right-hand side. Mm. So when I started dating guys, I went to extraordinary lengths to always keep them on the right-hand side of my body. Mm-hmm. So I would like go ahead to the bar or the restaurant where I was meeting 
check out the seating, check out the lighting. And then I would arrive early so I could get sat on the right side so that their chair was on the right hand side. Then when I would walk with them on the street, I would run around the right side so they would walk on the side I want them to walk on. And I'm talking like dating people for like half a year, ensuring they're always on the right hand side of my body. Imagine that in sex. Like that was really difficult. And and it becomes tiring. Yeah. And it it was bad for my confidence. Because like stupidly, I used to think, well, they've never seen the left hand side. And if they do, they won't fancy me. Of course, they'd seen the left hand side, you know, but like I was trying to keep this thing up that wasn't sustainable. Totally. You know, and I I think that was like a a question I, I wanted to ask you, like, how when when you're keeping something up that's not sustainable like how in your life you've been through so many different I don't know transitions is the right word but different chapters Mm. where's your self-esteem been at throughout your life I mean I think I've always been fortunate that my mum and my dad gave me a very stable foundation Mm -hmm. Um, when I was growing up I definitely always felt very loved by both of them Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't come out until I was 18 because I I didn't I didn't really understand the concept because I was really not that much discussion about what being queer meant. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there was, it was always negative. And they always encouraged you, though, to be creative and... Yeah, to, like, to they, they I went along to, like, you know, theatre school and stuff like yeah. that, and they always encouraged that. And interestingly, that was also a really safe space for mm. me, where while I was, like, maybe code switching at school trying to fit in, I would go, it was called the Fame Agency, right. the place. And I'd go to the Fame Agency on a Wednesday afternoon... And I could just be me. Yeah. And it was mostly girls. There was a couple of boys. But the the, the concept of gender and gender roles, I suppose, mm-hmm. and sexuality, which isn't really a thing when you're in your teens, like you get bullied for being gay, not because you're having sex with people no. of the same sex. It's actually about your femininity uh-huh. or for girls, their masculinity. Yeah. Um, but at fame, I could just like... Like, it, again, it was like that bedroom situation where yeah. I could just be me. No labels, no, labels. no questions. Yeah. No, yeah. I think like with identity politics and people might have heard stuff about sexualities or genders and all of these words. And I think some people are feeling a bit alienated and like maybe switching off and they're like, oh, God, I don't know what anybody's called anymore. And mm-hmm gender-neutral bathrooms and non this, and, and it's a bit confusing for some people. Um, I get that. And I was thinking the other day, I think the reason for all these labels is almost because uh, there's so many unique experiences. And yeah. I think ultimately the idea is to say that whoever you are, however you identify, however you feel inside, however you dress, whoever you sleep with, however you go through the world is okay is correct and it's always been there it's not new okay it might be a new concept to some people but it's always been there but it's never been discussed yeah you know it's yeah it's not that all of a sudden people exist differently yeah i think internally like for me i struggle back and forth like am am i a man am i am i a woman do Mm. i want to live as a woman am i trans do i and i i neither of those really ever fit and then when somebody just explained the simple concept that it was okay for boys to be feminine yeah. and girls to be masculine mm-hmm. and this this label gender fluid came about, I was like, oh, you mean I... I belong. I belong. <laughs> I exist. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And it's just that simple act that is so weirdly liberating. And now I feel kind of daft for not having thought of it earlier. Mm. And also those labels don't feel all that important to me. Like I don't... Well, I just... I feel like just a boy walking through the world and but I I'm also Courtney sometimes which is 
you know, very feminine and, and mm-hmm. woman-like. Mm. And I just kind of like like to float around between feminine and masculine, however I feel. So when you had that moment of coming out, mm. was there also another separate moment about discussing Courtney Act to your parents? And- yeah, it all happened on the same day, in nice. the same meal. Okay. <laughs> that like, memorable dinner. Yeah. yeah. I, um, I, Mum and Dad had come to Sydney and I had dinner with them the night before and it was on the tip of my tongue and I kept talking about like drag queen friends and friends with like strange names like Girl Craig and Mogadonna. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, and I never could quite get it out. Yeah. And then I... Why? Fear of rejection? Yeah, or... fear of rejection right, for okay. sure. Yeah. Um, and that, re- that fear of rejection was completely unwarranted, mm. but it was completely instilled in me from the world that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. And whilst my experience was a really positive one, I know that for lots of queer young people, at, well, people of all ages, that rejection is a very real thing. Mm. Um, How long had you been hiding it at this point? Um, not that long. I think I went to Sydney, oof, I think in like June of the year 2000, and then I probably came out early 2001 to mum and dad. Okay. Um, I mean, it happened very fast once I got to Sydney personally. Yeah. Like my first night in Sydney, my friend took me to a gay bar and I kissed my first ever boy. How exciting and liberating. Really, it was. Yeah. And yeah. actually her response, uh, I was kissing this boy, like thinking that I was hidden away and nobody could see. Because mm. even though I was in a gay bar, there was still something taboo. Yeah, because it's still public, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And she tapped me on the shoulder and I was like... <gasps> Dad? <laughs> yeah. But even her face, I was like, oh, she's going to tell me I'm not welcome to stay at her house. Like, she took me to the gay bar knowing yeah. the context. And she was like, oh, my God, was that your first kiss? And oh I was like, gosh. yes. And she was like, congratulations. So that fear of judgment was still kind of there. Yeah. But yeah. her validation in saying congratulations, it was like a, like a 180. Yeah. I was like, what? The green light. Yeah. 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 And I always am thankful uh, to her, Stephanie, um, <laughs> for that moment of acceptance because mm-hmm. I think those those moments, those um, uh, sort of fundamental, that's the word I'm looking for, uh, moments really inform how you go forward. Like if there was a trauma there, if it was like, you're disgusting. Yeah, yeah. That really creates a, a trauma that then plays on in the future. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. I mean, I think regardless of gender or sexuality, we all strive for those key moments of acceptance. Yeah. And it's not about like looking for validation from outsiders, but it's, it's kind of on that journey of identity of who am I? What's my purpose? Why am I here? You know, the, those informed moments where someone says, this is okay, you're mm. okay. Like that, that is a rich part of our tapestry of it is. 
being confident, you yeah. know, and I kind of hope we're moving away from, um, you know, in the past people would shame people for cosmetic surgery, mm. but actually that still equals judging somebody for how they look, their choices, how they feel, what makes them feel good. And, you know, it isn't, it isn't helpful, you know. No. And actually now we can have conversations where we say, I enjoy looking good, I enjoy taking care of myself and I'm in a good space mentally to make an informed decision to change parts of me and actually... That's that's okay, you yeah. know, and that's because people always used to t- interview me and say you must hate all these people that get their lips done, and I'm like, no, I've had my lips done, <laughs> but, and I'm also burnt, but I, like that's okay, like yeah. we, you know, we can't commend me and then then kind of you know crucify the next person just yeah. because they don't have a scar. Yeah, you know, it's really weird kind of thing to judge people on. Yeah, and it's freedom of choice, which is something I would always be a supporter of. Yeah. So, so sorry, I didn't let you finish. How, what did your parents say when you tell them about Courtney Act? Oh, right. So I told them about liking boys and then oh, I was talking about friends who did drag mm-hmm. and dad was like, oh, you know what? You'd look pretty good as a Sheila. <laughs> and I was like, well, since you mention it, Funny. dad. <laughs> and I can't remember. We didn't have phones with photographs on them back then. I felt like there was a photo, but I can't imagine where I would have gotten the photo at dinner because mm-hmm. it just had like a... Nokia 3210 snake. Yeah. yeah, snake phone. <laughs> and then dad revealed that he lived with a bunch of drag queens back in the 70s. No way. And my mum uh, was a beauty therapist and she used to wax uh, the legs of, she was like, do you know Carlotta? And I was like, yeah. Who's a famous, Australia's most famous transsexual and she right. was a, uh, a a drag performer back in the 70s as well. And I was like, oh wow, the apple didn't fall far from the tree, did it? <laughs> do you think they knew? Well, they said that they didn't uh, in that um, my sister liked sort of karate and more masculine things and I liked performing and all of the boys who went to fame were all like me. Uh-huh. And then so mum was just like, oh, it's just, he's just, you know, that's just shame. Yeah. Um, and I think, interestingly, dad, like, didn't skip a beat. Wow. Mum didn't either, but I could tell there was like a little bit of like, oh, my little boy is not going to get married and have children. Yeah, there's that little grieving yeah, thing, which, yeah. it, which is just like a reflex, don't you think? Yes, it isn't long-term. Yeah. No. It's just that instant kind of reaction because of society's yeah. ingrained ideals. And I think you have to give space for people to react to stuff. Yeah. Like you can't expect, I think so often, especially when you're young and you get a negative reaction, you'd you take it as an attack. Mm. But I think it's really important for people to remember that, you know, this information you've just dealt someone, whatever it is, that they have, they they are entitled to react and they're not necessarily going to be exactly where you want them to be. Mm-hmm. You know, not trying to, trying to give that space and allow that reaction too. So I fell in love with you on Big Brother because of this, because you went on there like I don't, not all guns blazing. Like in terms of drag, like you phenomenal. You know, you looked amazing, and and for some people it would have been like wow, like overwhelming for some of the guys in there that had never met somebody like you. Yeah. But then your personality, like you were very measured and controlled. You were never irrational. You were never reactive. Very intelligent, and you spent a lot of time with people trying to educate them, make them understand when when some of them were very reactive to you and very irrational to you. And mm. and it really interested me because in my world in 
the visible difference disfigurement is about sometimes hardcore like you've got to accept what look different you can't stare at somebody with burns and it's like no it's quite natural to stare at somebody with burns or one eye or a different face to you it, mm. it's not nasty and if you grew up in a rural village of course you've never met anybody with even you might not have even met a black person if mm. you grew up in a rural village mm. so and you know I, it just really reminded me of how I like to deal with reactions in my life and I, I became quite intrigued with you and I couldn't miss an episode and I learned quite a lot of you and that was nothing to do with drag, to yeah. be honest. You know, it, it, it was about kindness and empathy and being able to hold back when people might be hurting you. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, you and I have placed ourselves in in advocate positions, I suppose. Yeah. And um, I think because of that, I think I've chosen this and I, I want to educate. Um, I get that, you know, people minorities, I suppose, for a catch-all term, you know, in everyday life, don't necessarily, shouldn't have to be advocates Mm -hmm. for their community. Yeah, Um, because not everyone wants to be. Not everyone wants to be. Not everyone should be. Yeah. If you're a person of colour, I was talking, I was having dinner the other night and uh, one of my friends, she's Sudanese Australian, and she was talking about an experience where a a guy was like talking to her in about 10 minutes and he was like, yeah, I met a black person once. <laughs> and it was like this very weird statement to her. Yeah. But you could tell this person had been probably been thinking about it. He'd, For the whole once conversation. he had seen a black person in real life, was thinking about the whole conversation and then yeah. wanted to bring it up just to let her know that he's, he's met okay. a black person before. He's okay. Yeah. But then also, like, objectively, this person was trying. Yeah. It, yeah. Do you know people try with me and it's quite so sweet and it's, if I'm in a bad mood, it pisses me off. Yeah. But, and it's like, um, <laughs> it's like, do you know what? You're still good looking. And I'm like, okay, that's great for me. And what about the, anyone else that's burnt? And why is that so important? Or you look a lot better in person than all your pictures. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it's always a really, you know, nice place it comes from. But, but it still hurts. Yeah. I guess. And then it reminds you of what everyone does base importance and worth on and Mm. you know what about the person I might be mentoring who did lose their nose Mm. and you know are they not attractive I think one of the reasons to go back to big brother I think one of the reasons I wasn't reactive um was I think because my mum and my dad created that environment where I felt loved Mm -hmm. and supported Mm -hmm. and I can't ever quite understand how important that is Mm -hmm. But I, I think, and because I had, you know, the place where I could go and be myself. How old are you now? 37. Okay, so you have yeah. a lot of life experience yeah. as well. Yeah. And I've done a lot of meditation. Um, oh, okay, that's the interesting. The past meditation retreats, which are like 10-day silent retreats. Uh-huh. Um, I think that helps a lot. Did you my- meditate in the house? I did, yeah. Because it's an intense environment to yeah. remain calm. Yeah given the added pressure of actually some people did attack you in there yeah. and some people couldn't cope with Courtney. Yeah. Toward the end, I, I remember one specific incident where I was I was on the brink mm. um, of... Uh, it was And it was right at the end where we had to do these, like, final sort of pitches as why we should win or why something like that. And I remember uh, Amanda, uh, Amanda Barry, Wayne Sleep... And Anne Whittacombe had all mm. sort of come for me in some way, yeah. weirdly. <laughs> yeah, especially and, Anne. <laughs> yeah, and I was just feeling like quite displaced and I was like, I can't go and do this thing right now because I'm not going to give the best of who I am. Mm. And I just went and sat on the bed, put on my little mask and meditated for about 20 minutes. And then when I got to the end, 
I started thinking about, I don't know, and I don't know why I thought this. I think sometimes like the calm of meditation allows your brain to find what it needs. Mm-hmm. And I started thinking about um, my friends from Drag Race, actually, Adore, right. Bianca and Darian. And I just thought, what would what would they do right now? And, and how would they feel about who I've been, what I'm doing? And I got such a sense of strength and pride and then started That's thinking good. about all, all the people on the outside who I knew and loved, like my parents and such. What a skill to take yourself out of the reality of what was happening yeah, and sort of gain perspective. And it, it happened by, not, not by accident, like I took direct action in meditation. I just felt so empowered and I walked out and I was like, oh, I'm, I'm like refreshed. Um, did you feel proud when you won? I did. Because it's a big statement, what you winning what yeah. meant a lot of things for a lot of different people. And I felt more proud when I saw why I had won, mm. which I think was in large part due to those conversations, like rational, non-reactive conversations with people. It mm. seems to me, and it's hard to know because I wasn't watching it unfold objectively, but it seems to me that that was a big thing that people really responded to. Yeah, and it's like, obviously, if, you, if I'm typing it up and I'm researching you, it's like it, it was a reality show that it makes you a reality TV star, but that kind of cheapens what really happened in that series because it was so much more than that and it was so important. And lots of those contestants, I think you may have changed their life and their views and the way they might treat other people. And, you know, it was a quite a big movement, I personally thought, you know. Um, which is not really what you see on Big Brother no, normally. You I know? mean, to hear that is just lovely. So thank you. It's like it's 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 funny because having had different reality TV experiences, mm. this was the first time that I felt um, it was so. It was it was like I I can't tell you what a gift Celebrity Big Brother was to me personally. Yeah. Because I felt like everything that I have always strived for and worked towards was validated mm-hmm. by that. Yeah. And like we were talking earlier, that that validation, although it shouldn't define who you are, it is feedback. It is, yeah, and it, it is. And that's yeah. normal as a human yeah. to, to kind of vibe off that and maybe not base everything on it, but it's like pointers, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, and, totally. Yeah. And it was like, oh. Thank, and you know what? I don't know. I, I I tried it in Australia. I tried it in the US. And I think a lot of it has to do with the geography of where I was in the UK and the history of um, camp and queer and other and um, the UK's relationship to masculinity and femininity. Yeah. There's so much more diversity here mm-hmm. in, in that world. Right. In Australia, it's very like alpha male. Okay. In America, it's like that. But here you have... Harry Styles, John Lennon, Russell Brand, you yeah. know, Stephen Fry, Richard Dawkins, all sorts of different... It's richer, isn't it? Yeah. 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 So when I've watched Drag Race, um, I find it quite fascinating. And I suppose one of the things that leaves me almost feeling quite envious is when everyone is in drag, they exude these huge amounts of confidence. And it's like quite aspirational confidence mm. where you think, wow, like I, I'm a woman and they're dragging up as a woman. And I've never had that level of confidence, no matter what stage I'm at in my life. How do they get to that? Like, is it is it all about a costume and a persona? And once you change and strip down, it's that's gone? Or is that consistent? Like, 
I think a big part of it is that men weren't socialised as women. Mm-hmm. So we have none of the shame <laughs> yeah. that comes with being a woman. Yeah. And I think women are told to feel certain ways about their bodies, about how they look, mm-hmm. about how they act. Mm-hmm. And they're sort of taught to minimise themselves in that in modesty many ways. and like, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think because, um, you know, we're essentially boys dressing up, I mean, not necessarily as women, but as femininity. Mm. Um, it, there's none of that expectation. And so it's just enacted without regard yeah. in a positive way. And I do think that a strength comes from, you know, people It's people find at Halloween time, you know, they put on a costume yeah, and they're a little bit like, oh, empowered, empowered and, and excited spicy and, and different. Yeah, it gives yeah. you license. Yeah. But then I think the the... The real important thing is to, you know, as Dorothy learnt, you know, you had the power all along. Yeah. And it wasn't the shoes that took you back home. It was just that, you know, you had to to find that in yourself. And I think getting to marry the, the confidence or whatever you discover about yourself when you're in drag mm. and feeding that back into, you know, the the core of who you are. Because I think for a lot of my life I compartmentalised those two mm-hmm. and actually the confidence and the beauty of drag almost made me feel uncomfortable or le- less confident as a boy. And so, like, learning how to understand that all of that is me was really important. Do you think it's something all guys should try once? Uh, I th- I think it is. So last year on uh, my Christmas special, we put Johnny Peacock in drag. Okay. And I don't know if he quite knew what he was up for. Like, he knew that he was being put in drag. I'm like, was he willing or was he paid? Like, what was the... <laughs> Both. Both. Yeah. I, yeah. And I I think, again, like you said, he might have just been thinking about, like, you know, some man in a wig at, at a mm. pub kind of thing that you might have seen. And so this, like, three-hour transformation process... Did you do the makeup? No. I, um, someone, I had a makeup artist doing it. Okay. But... Then when he saw himself in drag, I, I think it was all a bit confronting. Was he hot? Um, yeah, he looked like that's the thing about drag is that it's like this because it's so hyper real. Yeah. When you place like big blonde hair and big lashes and big lips and curves. Yeah. It sort of cuts through any of the little questions and you just see this hyper feminine yeah. ideal. And I think it was a bit confronting. And we did it also in like in a in a in a pilot. And the same sort of thing happened where you kind of get this like, oh, what? Oh, it's almost like. So was he uncomfortable, do you think? Or just. Yeah, I mean, he 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 worked through it and he said, you know, if I can do this and anybody can. And yeah, like he, yeah. he, he talked through it. But it's interesting watching that initial response because I don't think people are really um, prepared yeah. to see themselves so visually different. Well, it's a big thing. When you look in the mirror, you take for granted that you'll always see this looking back. Mm. And for some people that changes, you know, and there's lots of different things happen in life. Yeah. I I keep holding on to this idea that everything is in a state of flux. Everything's always yeah. changing. Yeah. I think that's a great way to be able to hold on to joy. Yeah. When people are trying to be bleak. And, yeah. you know, I think that's, it's good to remain optimistic. I feel like I could talk to you for ages, <laughs> um, but that's not the concept of a podcast. <laughs> um, and I know you went on tour last year with Under the Covers. Um, so where, and you said you were writing as well. Where yeah. else could we find you? What are you up to? Um, well, 
Um, got no real live things uh, in the UK at the moment, but I am... You're living in London now, are yes. you? Yeah. Yeah, I've okay. been here, I guess, kind of since Big Brother. Yeah. I was back and forth a bit from... I was living in Los Angeles, um, and I have this great fortune of escaping to Australia around January and oh, coming back jealous. in about yeah. April. <laughs> yeah. So I've missed all of last winter. I'm missing all of this winter. Lovely. So I still am <laughs> under this really false notion that the weather here is just delightful. Yeah, so and you don't get depressed no. and seasonally affected. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm, my new show is called Fluid okay. and it's all original music mm-hmm. and it sort of examines the concept of fluidity, be it through gender or sexuality or just as a metaphor for life. Okay. And this um, is a theatre production? Yeah, like yeah. a cabaret. Okay. Um, so it'll be, I don't know where it'll be in the UK yet, but it'll be around in 2020. Okay. Um, I did the Edinburgh Fringe with Under the Covers the year before last. Oh, cool. And a tour around the UK. Yeah. Um, so that that sort of stuff. It's yeah. what I love most. I just love being on stage. Yeah. How fantastic. Yeah. How Like the younger you, would you ever have envisaged you'd be doing this? It was definitely my dream. Yeah. And I think that I was always so worried when I was younger about the future mm-hmm. and you know the and now I look back and I just think wow and I wish I could just tell myself to worry a bit less still work as hard but like don't worry you know what you, you whatever you think is going to happen in your future it's going to be completely different mm-hmm. but when it happens it's happened and so just accepting it and and making the best of that is the most important thing. Do you know what? The title of the series is Extraordinary People and I think it's so inspirational to hear that you're living your dreams. Thank you. And it's so hopeful for us all and, and motivating. And for anybody listening who's doesn't even feel close to their, well, maybe doesn't even have dreams mm. because that's how hard it is at mm. the moment. I think that there's a lot of reassurance in what you say and it doesn't feel patronizing or out of reach for other people it does feel relatable it does feel real so Mm. and your dreams don't have to be um extreme or they don't have to be about stardom or followers or your dream can be as simple as you know loving your family and Mm -hmm. and loving your work or loving yourself loving yourself yeah thank you for coming my pleasure Um, i think you're very unique um, and you bring so many sort of life lessons and life experience to the podcast. I think lots of people are going to get a, a lot you. from this episode. Thanks for listening to Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this, please help us spread the word. Rate and review the show where you got this or share on socials.